Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. They were dubbed the best toys ever. In 2011, Wired Magazine a cutting, bleeding-edge publication for all things new and fandangled, published a list of the best five toys ever. And I don't bring this up because I aim to disappoint you. If you were giving toys to the little ones in your life, maybe, if anything, these might give you some ideas for next year. You can add them to their list. Are you ready? Maybe pencils in hand? Fifth on the list, dirt. Fourth, a cardboard tube. Third, string. Second, a box. And number one of all time, a stick. Initially, you might think that you were expecting something a little bit more, like this the iPad or an Xbox or Tickle Me Elmo, when in each year those things were listed, those were were the biggest toys ever in those respective years. But after you pause and think about it a little bit, I know what every single one of you are thinking, and if you're not, you should be thinking it. These are great toys! Because I know what I did with all of those things, and I know many, if not all of you have too. Have you seen what kids can do with a giant washer-dryer-sized box and some string, some dirt, and a cardboard tube? And those things, the power doesn't run out. Initially, you might think that this is a little lackluster, but after you pause for a little bit, you might think of throughout the entire world and all of history, these certainly are the toys that are probably utilized the most. And as I pause, I was talking with my wife about this when I think of just just in between the backyard and the garage, these certainly are part of our kids' kids' collections. Maybe they're going to use them the next dry day we have. And what this illustrates to us, and what you probably gather right away, is that the simplest things in life often end up meaning the most. You add these simple things that are probably worthy of outside, if not the trash, and that's it, but you sprinkle in some imagination, and this gives kids everything that they ever could have wanted and more. Turn off the TV, shut down the gadgets, send them outside, and before you know it, they are able, or at least they should be able, to to find a whole host of of fun and games just with these very simple things. This, This demonstrates something that we already know. That everybody, and children can prove this to us as adults, everybody is after the most meaningful things, and so often the most meaningful things are found in the simplest of things. And we don't just need these simple objects to prove that to us. Now, throughout Christmas, it certainly proves to us more so than any time of the year, but throughout the entire year, every single one of us is after the simplest things, the things that matter the most, not the things that are here today and gone tomorrow, but the things that year after year we are after, we identify them, we label them, we want them. Things like, well, words that we've been talking about a lot this this season, words like hope and love and joy and peace, and life. These aren't just words that 
fit decorations or ornaments, words or labels that we assign to some candles. These are, aren't even just words that kids kind of demonstrate, even if they got a box, a cardboard tube, and some string as they find with their imagination their own version of peace and joy and life in the backyard. No, these are, these are the simplest things in life that all of us are after. And Christmas, unlike any other time of the year, proves that to us. And the reason it's important for us to talk about that is because we live in a world where these things are so hard to come by. If all we did, and if all God gave us, was that Luke 2 version of Christmas, where we see the angels, where we envision Mary and Joseph adoring this child laid in a manger, and where we hear about Mary treasuring all these things and pondering them in her heart, we, we might be tempted to walk away with a semblance of Christmas that is peaceful, joy-filled, hope-filled, and loving. But God wants us to have a little bit more of a well-rounded perspective on Christmas. We might call it a realistic one, one filled with wisdom, even amid desperation, catastrophe, and tragedy, because that's the world in which we live. And so he doesn't just give us the Luke 2 version of Christmas. He gives us the Matthew 2 version of Christmas where hope and joy and love and life and peace are almost nowhere to be found. And the reason he gives us that is so that you and I would know that the greatest gifts, like the ones that we talked about in the kids' message, the greatest gifts that he gives us at Christmas are the ones that don't just take us out of this world for a time as we ignore the reality in which we live, but instead they bring us through this world and through this life into the life where we are destined to live. My friends, as you and I will see as we take another look at the gospel lesson that I just read, God sent his son at Christmas into this world to live through this world and to save us through this world from it, not to be somehow disconnected from it. I, I invite you to have that lesson open. Matthew chapter 2. It's important to identify the key players in the context in this time in history. First, and what we'll hear a whole lot more about next week, you have the Magi. They're the ones that are leaving, and the reason they're leaving is because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. The reason they came to begin with, as you well know, is around the time of Jesus' birth, a star had appeared, and Magi from the east, these wise men, came to see who this king was. And so Jerusalem was stirred, and Herod greatly disturbed along with this city because of this great assembly that came. He tells them to go and find this king and to tell him so he can go worship them too, but really he just had in mind that he would kill this threat to his crown, so he envisioned. It makes sense because he was not a Jew, although he was ruling over the Jews. He was a puppet, so to speak, from the Roman emperors put in charge of this troublesome area. He thought that he was in... in in control, but largely the Romans were. And this guy was all sorts of crazy. He's no one to be messed with because of all the people that you think that are assigned the title of great throughout history, he's one of them. He is Herod the Great. He would do incredible things. He would improve the temple that the Israelites built. An amazing modern marvel even to this day as we look at how the stones fit together, no mortar 
Some of the stones, in fact, one in particular, if you ever go to the Holy Land, you, you can see one of them is the a size of a full-size RV and weighs about the same amount as a hundred full-size elephants. And how that's put into place and formed just right, it, it took decades for him to do this. this. He was great, but he's also greatly troubled. More than just some paranoia and insecurity, he would eliminate anybody who was a threat to his throne, including family members, if you know anything about this tragic history. And unfortunately, the babies in Bethlehem would not tinge the calloused conscience of this crazed lunatic leader. So when the Magi were warned in a dream and he knew that he had been outwitted, he decides that all the babies under two in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas are going to die so that he can retain his rule. It's a special brand of crazy. And even though I don't know exactly what you were thinking, it doesn't matter how quietly you are thinking whatever it is that you are thinking, I can still hear some of what you are thinking. Because this is the time when we have trouble. It's not just when tragedy strikes a room full of adults. It's not just when some catastrophe hits other people on the side of the world. We've never met, and it's hard to read those headlines. It is also, and dare I even say, especially when tragedy hits children, that we start to think these thoughts that you're thinking right now. Ask these questions that I'm assuming, I think safely, that you're asking right now. Questions that go along the, these lines. Why, why would God allow that? Questions like, why wouldn't God just fill in the blank? Why couldn't he just prevent fill in the blank? And then we ought to be very careful because maybe our questions in, in a moment of even sinful speculation would go where we dasn't not be, to be redundant. Where we start questioning the goodness of God and the power of God in one as though we are in a place or have the right to even suppose such a thing, which we don't. And I can maybe safely assume that you are asking these questions because I know that I struggle with them too. When I read stories like this from 2,000 years ago, and similar stories like the ones we read in the headlines today that make us just want to turn the news off. But there's a reason why God gives us this lesson, even especially at the time of Christmas. It is, as we said at the beginning, so that we would have a more wise and a well-rounded perspective of why Christmas came at all. And maybe first we can address these three huge truths which lead, to, which lead us to a greater reality, especially at Christmas. Truth number one. God didn't make the world this way. When God called all things into existence by the power of his word, everything was perfect, even to his divine standards. He didn't wreck this world. He didn't create a wrinkle in the systems, so to speak. He didn't throw a wrench into anything. Humankind ruined it. Humankind broke it. And there's no other thing that we can walk away with and we can see that this is actually the way that the world actually is. We, we know that when we take a step away, even just when we look at this lesson, that this is exactly the truth. I mean, look at how broken this is, that, that you have all of these babies, these little kids, these toddler boys that are being murdered and are at the hands of this crazy madman. And why is he even in control? Why is Rome even allowing this to happen? Because they knew. 
Well, maybe because they function this way in other parts of their empire too. Why is it this? It's because this world is broken and you and I can walk away with that even at this time of Christmas. I mean, it's around this time of year where people struggle with depression and mental illness more than any other time of the year. People are still hungry. People are cold. People are struggling with sickness and disease and countless people are still dying and Christmas brings that to light. Even our own loved ones that we miss, there's something about Christmas that makes that more painful. And it's not even just the general brokenness of this world, it's the brokenness that we're walking around with too. I mean, it's at this time of the year where we're reflecting upon the mistakes that we wish we would had never done in this last year, in 2019. We're maybe even thinking about resolutions. Why? Because at least in part for some of them, we want to fix some of the mistakes that we've made, some of the own brokenness in our life, the fears that we have about what lies in 2020 and beyond. Already, none of us, I think, are thinking that 2020 is only going to be great, and that's it. There's nothing negative about it. Why? Because this world is broken. And again, we doesn't find ourselves into this place where we ask, well, if God was really in control, and if he was really loving, then don't go there. Don't go there. You and I are not in a place to even suppose that we can ask God those questions because, first of all, to start asking, I pray we never finish that question, to start asking that question means that we're already dress, addressing God as God, which means that he is above and beyond us and therefore we shouldn't ask the question to begin with and we can maybe start, stop before we, we finish. But even if we would want to ask that question of God, that would mean that his power and his wisdom and his love is beyond our grasp to begin with, therefore it already proves that we shouldn't be asking it. Again, don't go there. What we can walk away with is that this world is broken. No, it's not only brought about because parents screwed up and look at what happened to their children. No, it doesn't mean that, that other people are in control. It just means that this world is a broken place. And that leads us to the second important truth you have to walk away with, especially at Christmas. That is why God sent his son into the world to destroy this evil work. God, instead of wiping the slate clean and starting over, so loved the world and all of humankind along with it that he would send his one and only son so that he would save us from this world. And this already tells you what you already knew at Christmas. God does not send his son into the world to create this fluffy, cozy, and only comfortable form of Christmas. He sent his son into this rude and ugly world to give us a realistic Christmas. God does not send his son into this world to somehow be this ethereal version of some kind of savior, disconnected but never engaged. No, he sends his son into this world to live through life in this world to save us from it. And that tells you about the kind of king that we have, the kind of God that we have, and the kind of savior that we have wrapped up in that child already at Christmas. This is not some king who is a ruthless madman who would go around killing any threats to his throne who would kill children who somehow, some way might become a, a king and take his crown. No, this is the one who would subject himself to enemies to die for people who were distant and disconnected. 
who wouldn't assume a throne with pomp and circumstance, but would, from the cradle of a feeding trough to the the throne, so to speak, of a cross and anointed there with nails and a crown of thorns, he would die, and in this way he would show us the kind of ruler that he is. Not for riches, and not for power, and not for some relegated peace, but in this way he would prove to be the king of kings and lord of lords, because he would conquer things that no king or ruler in this world ever could. Think of it. He would live through this world so you would know that God understands you and loves you. And then when he was hanging on the cross, God would put the entirety of all of our sin on his shoulders and would punish him so you would know that your sin is paid for in full forever. Jesus said, it's finished. All of evil finds its source in what we call the evil one, and yet in this divine act, through the redemptive work of Christ, he would crush that serpent's head so you would know that evil would never rule, not for eternity. God would do more than just save people from Herod, he would save them from hell. More than just save people from the sword, he would save them from eternal suffering. And you see that when this baby would grow up to be not just some personal political figure, but he would grow up to be the Savior who would sacrifice himself and rise from the dead. And since the tomb is still empty, you know that all of these greatest gifts at Christmas are already yours. Everything we want for, everything we want and everything we hope for at Christmas harkens back to those simplest things. Far beyond the the toys and the box and the cardboard tube and this and the string and the stick and the dirt is, is what we're really after, those simplest base things that get to our greatest needs in life. Hope and joy and peace and love. And the second great truth we learn from this lesson is that God gives us just that. It was not his time to die yet. It was not his time to die as a sacrifice for the world. And so God, allowing him to be under the control of his surrogate father, and his mother would be carried off into Egypt so that he would be kept safe until the time he would return and he would fulfill everything that God had planned for you. This is the type of love God has for you. And that leads us to the truth number three. That God's plan is best. You see that in our lesson, don't you? If you were Joseph, don't you think you would have had a couple questions for God? I mean, I've awoke from crazy dreams that have nothing to do with my salvation or that of any others, and I've had questions for God like, what in the world was that? Can you imagine waking up from a dream, and you're the mom or the dad, and all of a sudden you hear, you got to take off to Egypt? And that's not friendly territory if you know anything about the history of this time. Don't you think you would have a couple questions for God? Like, why are you telling this? How in the world? What am I going to do? You have all these questions for God. And God, notice in all of this narrative through which the Spirit inspires Matthew, he doesn't dig at all into the how and the why. He just tells him that. That is important. He does not tell him how. He does not tell him why. He just tells him that this is going to happen and that this is going to happen. And that's exactly how it happens. Because God's plan is best. And you, act, you see how that's carried out. It's not even just that throughout all of this, God had made promises in the past and thereby throughout this unfortunate circumstance, to say the least, he fulfills just those two promises along with all the others. It is that God proves that his plan is best for you too. He doesn't tell you how. And he doesn't tell you why. 
But he does prove to you through this lesson that his plan is best. Because look at what happens in the end. Jesus not only fulfills promises, he not only comes back to do everything that God said he would do, but he does all of this not just for some people back then, but he does it for me and for you. This is the realistic kind of Savior we have, where God calls his shot and Jesus fulfills it, even through tragedy, not outside of it. It reminds me of a story I once heard that illustrates this point. There was once a father who had a family, And along with a few children and his wife, he fell into some difficult circumstances. Having a job, some terrible things started happening to their home and to their property. A tree fell on part of the home. Some of the plumbing started to break. Some of the walls came apart. There was water damage. Something went wrong with the property. Something went wrong here. Something went wrong there. And he kind of just, being relatively handy, just kind of patched up part of the house and took care of parts of the property. And his kids would ask questions like, why don't we just fix this? Why can't we go in that room anymore? As he blocked off the room, because that's where the tree fell. Why can't we use that bathroom anymore? Because he just shut all of that off and capped it up instead of fixing all of it. Why can't we go here? Why? And he would never fully answer them. He would just tell them, it's going to get taken care of. It's going to get taken care of. Suddenly, one day, not long after all of these tragedies struck, the father died. And then the kids knew. Right before all of these tragedies happened, he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and it took its toll right away, and he passed away. But throughout this time, instead of fixing all of these things, he invested all of his money, working with his lawyer, allocating where life insurance would go, all of his retirement, to a much bigger and better house and property where none of this was going to happen and where somebody long after he was gone was going to take care of all of these needs so they would never happen again. And then the kids knew after the fact why their dad wasn't slapping a Band-Aid on an infection, so to speak. But rather, he was providing something bigger and better for them as part of his greater plan. While you're in the middle of tragedy and while you look at this world of catastrophe around you, it is nearly impossible for us to not have questions for God. But what God gives us this Christmas, even with this well-rounded and wiser perspective of Christmas, is that his plan is much greater than you and I ever could have imagined. He doesn't just want to give you the immediate fix that you and I might think that is best. He gives us something far greater than that. A life that knows no death. A peace that has no strife and an existence that lasts into eternity. And isn't this exactly what we need? I mean, this, is, this gives us all the comfort that we need in this life, that God foists himself and his son into the fray. It means when you are in the middle of struggle, you can't say that he doesn't care, and you can't say that he doesn't know, because he does. It means that when you're a parent and you find things completely out of your control, whether your child is sick, whether you've had a miscarriage, a stillbirth, whether you've lost someone close to you, a child tragically dies, you can't say that God doesn't know. His prophecy was all about Rachel mourning over her sons. God knows and he cares. And no, he doesn't tell you how and why he's going to take care of it, but he tells you that he will. And that's all that you need from your father. So you can cry to him, Abba. Father, because you are his son and you are his daughter and he cares for you too, even through your tears. Of all the things that you and I might want, 
God gives us these great, dare I even say greater gifts at Christmas, so that when you and I find ourselves one day in a box, in the dirt, the gifts that God gives at Christmas even come to the foreground then to give us hope that has no end and peace and joy, the full realization of God's love and eternal life. That is what God gives you at Christmas. Not outside of this world, but in it, and yes, even through it. Amen.